Welcome to Key 3 Educators, helping you excel as a Christian school leader, educator, or homeschooler as you outfit students to learn themselves, love God, and live connected. Here's your host, Stephanie Smith. Welcome to the Key 3 Educators podcast. I am delighted to bring you today's guest. If you've been in Christian education for very long, especially as a home educator, you've likely heard of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or IEW, as it's more commonly referred to, and its founder, Andrew Pudawa. As the principal speaker for IEW, Andrew travels internationally, speaking not only about teaching writing, but thinking, music, spelling, and something we're going to be talking about today and in the next episode, the learning differences between boys and girls. Andrew is a graduate of the Talent Education Institute in Japan, which you may know more by the Suzuki Method, and he holds a Certificate of Child Brain Development. But he says his best endorsement was from a young Alaskan boy who called him the funny man with the wonderful words. He and his wife, Robin, who he proclaims as heroic, are the parents of seven children and grandparents of 15. Having been a longtime user and advocate for IEW materials, both in homeschool and Christian school settings, I can attest to the quality of these materials and having been a Audience member in more than one of Andrew's speaking engagements, I can tell you he has content that is well worth your time. Andrew was incredibly gracious with his time, which is why I'm able to bring you a two-part series on this vital topic of differences in boys and girls from a scientific standpoint and how we need to factor that in to their education, whether we're at home or we're in a classroom. Let's jump in. I just want to thank you. It's it's really an honor to have you today. And even though we haven't met personally, I feel like I've known you because I go back to the IEW days of VHS tapes. And I've heard you speak at different conferences. And so I know that you just have a wealth of information. So I really appreciate your, your giving your time to, to share with us today. Many of our listeners are going to know you as the writing guru. Uh, the founder of, of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or IEW. But for anyone who doesn't know you, uh, give us the commercial-length introduction to you and IEW. Well, sure. I would say, you know, most importantly, I am a father of seven and a grandfather of 15. And we we began homeschooling around 1990, so we're we're not quite the pioneer generation, but slightly thereafter. Okay. And uh, I founded the Institute for Excellence in Writing in 1995, and went full time, running around teaching writing seminars and selling tapes <laughs> tapes <laughs> uh, in 2000. Okay. So um, it's been a good run. I speak it you know, a dozen or more conventions every year. Um, we we have um, a whole line of new, improved products, much better than when you first came across them. 
And uh, I don't know, I'm very delighted that all of my children who have school-age children are homeschooling. Mm-hmm. So it's it's good to see the second generation fruits coming out here. Exactly, exactly. And just to clarify, so the materials that IEA, IEW excuse me, produces aren't just for homeschooling families. They're also used in private and public schools. Yes, actually, that is the fastest growing area of our business. Homeschooling is still the large majority. But uh, there's been, I think, a, a need for schools to differentiate themselves from the mediocre or the bad. Okay. So you see in the Catholic school world, uh, most of the schools that are surviving and thriving have shifted over to a kind of classical, more Catholicly traditional uh, curriculum. Uh, of course, in the Christian school world, the classical schools are the ones that are doing well. But in the last five years, there's been the explosion of hybrid schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of these are charters, some of these are private. It's one notch up from, say, a homeschool co-op in that you know they hire teachers and people enroll their children and pay tuition, mm-hmm. but they get, uh, you know, two days at school, three days at home, or three days at school, two days at home. And this, I think, is a very attractive option for many people these days. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, with the COVID schoolers realizing that, hey, homeschooling isn't all that bad, <laughs> right. uh, we've seen a I think a surprisingly high retention of people who pulled them their kids uh, out of school because of mask or the schools shut down or, or there were vaccine mandates they weren't willing to uh, submit to. Or they saw that what's actually happening in the school curriculum is not great and they could probably do better even a little bit better with just a little bit of effort or a whole lot better. And so uh, I feel very grateful that we have been able to serve these very diverse groups with our, you know, teacher and parent training products, as well as our courses that are aimed directly for students. And not only do, do you have, curriculum available for <clears throat> for all of these markets. But one of the things that I know is that you have a very rich and diverse background. And so in your speaking engagements, even though you are the founder of this Institute for Excellence in Writing, your background goes far beyond just being contained within writing. And so one of the things that I know from you're speaking and also listening to some of your podcasts. And I do want to put a plug in for the Arts of Language podcast at the end of this, because I think it serves a, a much wider audience than just teachers in language arts, but is that you have a, a long history in understanding and growing in your learning and teaching about human potential and brain development. So can you kind of walk us back to your beginnings with Dr. Suzuki in Japan because we're going to talk about today the learning differences between boys and girls. And I think that's so incredibly important, especially in our culture today. 
And I want you to have the opportunity that your experience in this isn't just purely anecdotal experience in teaching with, with your own students. So can you kind of go back and take us back to that and kind of walk us through some of your journey with that? Yeah, sure. Um, I had the great privilege of being able to live in Japan for three years in my early 20s. And Dr. Shinichi Suzuki, the founder of Suzuki Method or Talent Education, what you want to call it, uh, was still alive and teaching six days a week. Um, it was a phenomenal experience of having daily contact with someone I would consider to be a truly great human being. In fact, uh, he was con considered a national living treasure by okay, the country wow. of Japan. Okay. And I would say, you know, while I learned more things than could ever be continued, more things than can ever be discussed in a short podcast, the one thing that was most significant in my formation was his incredible belief that every child could learn. It, it didn't matter what their inborn genetics, their aptitude or circumstances. He believed that with the right method, the right environment, the right parents, um, every child could learn anything. And so he just happened to use violin and then through other people, other musical instruments, to try to prove to the world that his teaching methodology would work even with something so very challenging as playing a violin. Okay. So I, I took that idea and uh, went from there to a place in Philadelphia called the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential. And there I worked and learned with Glenn Doman, one of the founders, and his whole staff. Uh, again, a three-year cycle. And I learned a lot of fundamental principles about child brain development. And again, one of the commonalities was rather than try to treat children on an inpatient basis, they would teach the parents and families of brain-injured children programs of treatment that could be done at home every day rather than, you know, once or twice a week in a clinic. Mm -hmm. And what they found then was tremendous better progress and also that the siblings of the brain-injured children, because they were in that a uh, very stimulated environment, oftentimes doing many of the same program elements to develop the, their brain, uh, they kind of accelerated and became, uh, I guess what you might call above average in their um, physical, social, and intellectual excellence. So, so, so you brought this, not just this um, experience, but you brought this perspective about learning when you then later 
founded IEW. So can you walk through how did IEW come come to be? Well, um, <laughs> honestly, it was the result of failing to eke out a living as an <laughs> impoverished violin teacher <laughs> while trying to keep my wife home so she could homeschool children. Okay. And I went through a series of kind of side gigs, little, you know, part-time jobs or, or more kind of part-time businesses that I was trying. And my main goal was to make enough extra money that I could afford to teach music. Okay. okay. Um, so in 94, late 94, I... Well, I have to back up a little bit. In 90, I was working for this small private school in Montana. And one of the teachers there was a Canadian woman who was super gung-ho about this thing called the Blended Soundsite Program of Learning. Uh-huh, right. And so she um, convinced our whole faculty, which was only about 10 people, uh, to go to Northern Alberta for 10 days and take this teacher training course. And there was kind of a reading and writing for early, younger children, like grade one, two, three. And then there was a writing component. So I was fascinated with the writing component because as soon as I saw it, I thought, this is a Suzuki method. For teaching hmm. English composition. Okay. It uses kind of uh, a system based on imitation. It uh, starts wherever a child is, whatever grade, whatever age, you start at the beginning. So it's a pathway. Um, it has gradually increasing levels of complexity. Um, and there is a constant uh, mastery uh, practice of everything you've learned so far so that it becomes easier and easier and more natural and second nature. So I saw that. I thought, well, this is exactly what Dr. Suzuki was trying to prove to the world that every child can learn if you use the right system environment in teaching. So I Came back from that. I taught in that school a couple years. I taught my two oldest daughters who were around 12 and 10 at the time. And some of their friends got great results. And so in 94, I had moved to a different city. And that school in Montana had said, would you come back and do a little workshop on that writing program we all learned five years ago uh, for our new teachers? I thought, yeah, I'd love to do that. My mother lived over there anyway. So I did the first seminar, and the people there thought, well, this is great. Never saw anything like it. There were a few homeschoolers. They encouraged me and said, there's nothing like this in the homeschool curriculum world. And so I, uh, and this was pre-internet days, yeah, right? That's right. Uh -huh. So 
I had to get flyers printed and put stamps on them. <laughs> and I sent 400 flyers over to a homeschool group leader in Seattle. And it was the closest really big city I could get to. And uh, she mailed them out. And I got 20 people to pay $40 to listen to me talk for one day. And I thought, okay, this has potential. This is more money than I make in a whole week of teaching violin as hard as I can. And you don't have to listen to all the scratchy sounds, right? Well, no, I, I, I've always loved young children and teaching children of all ages. So, you know, I'm not irritated by scratchy sounds or crabby children. Um, but over the uh, period of, say, 95 to 2000, I gave uh, more seminars. I got a couple invitations to speak at homeschool conventions. We made some very bad recordings. <laughs> and uh, it was going well enough that I thought I really could replace my income uh, from teaching music with doing more of this. and then. Uh, it coincided with our family deciding to move to California. So I went full time and it's just been amazing for there the last 22 years. Okay. And so you didn't just put together a curriculum. I mean, you continue to teach. So when you speak today about the differences between um, boys and girls and young men and, and women and how they learn and engage with life differently. Um, you have hundreds of thousands, I, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of students that have sat under your instruction, both in writing as, as well as in music. So you've seen this firsthand. This isn't just something that, that you've read about. Yeah, you know, I guess... My awareness of boys and girls and the differences in interacting with them and teaching them was semi-conscious for a long time. I just kind of naturally knew how to deal with them. Um, I have seven children, six are girls, and then we had a boy. And so that kind of challenged me a little bit um <laughs> and you know in terms of i thought i knew everything about being a dad of girls <laughs> uh, but what happened and i don't remember the year it was in the early to mid o's i was invited to speak at a catholic schools conference atlanta and the other presenter at this conference the main presenter was leonard sack S-A-X. And Dr. Sachs had just written his first book called Why Gender Matters. And he had been studying the different ways that boys and girls uh, hear differently, see differently, handle stress and pain differently, are motivated differently. And so he was beginning to speak on this. Uh, travel around. He did a lot of support for schools that wanted to do single sex classrooms 
uh, or even support for um, all boy or all girl schools, which are very rare in this country, less rare in some of the Commonwealth countries like Australia, New Zealand, England, whatever. Anyway, I sat in his four hour presentation and I took a ream of notes. I was captivated. And I guess what was so exciting was when I saw that he was presenting all the research, all the science, all the support for what I already knew to be true. And I really, I get excited when science actually supports the truth. Right, exactly. (laughs) Doesn't always happen. Yeah, right, exactly. So I came back from that conference, very excited. I bought his book, read it two times, um, followed his work, and I started sharing some of those ideas combined with my own stories uh, at homeschool conferences. And I would say that one talk, uh, teaching boys and other kids who would rather be making forts all day, that, that skyrocketed to the top of most popular conference talks, um, certainly that I could give and almost for anyone. Right, right. One of the reasons picking this topic today, because when we were communicating, I told you that going through your messages, it was like standing at a Baskin Robbins ice cream counter <laughs> and thinking, oh my gosh, they all look great. What, what do I pick? But, um, you know, I have a real heart especially for young men. So I'm the mom of five sons. They're now all grown. Mm -hmm. In no way do I believe that we have to put down one gender in order to raise up the other. Girls have their own issues and needs in our society. That's just not so much my, my wheelhouse because I wasn't raising girls. And so I devoured everything I could find on how you could raise and educate boys. And so one of the reasons for this is because if you look statistically at the state of men and boys in our nation, it's not good in mm. in a lot of respects. So I just want, I want to read just a couple of statistics here because I want our audience to know that what we're talking about today, this isn't about just how to have more fun in education or just about how to um, tailor lessons so a student does a little bit better on a, on a test. This is about impacting lives um, and because education is such a huge part of a person's life. So let me read just a few of these. Um, a preschool, middle school, or high school boy is two to three times as likely as a girl classmate to be diagnosed with ADHD and placed on long-term medication. Boys receive lower grades exponentially higher disciplinary measures and significantly greater severity of punishments, including expulsion, beginning in preschool and continuing throughout high school. Boys account for 70% of all learning disorder diagnoses. 80% of high school dropouts are boys. In 2018, 88% of girls graduated from high school on time, while only 82% of boys did. 40% of college graduates are males, and as of 2019, only 36% of males aged 25 to 29 held a bachelor's degree or higher. Um, For the last seven years, men's college graduation rates are dropping, while women's rates are increasing. 
And this is a staggering statistic. <clears throat> Um, a 20-year-old male living in the USA today has a one in nine chance of being incarcerated. There's something wrong with, with a country that is as wealthy as ours with having those types of statistics related to a gender. And when you look at these suicide statistics in the United States, um, you know, in 2019, more people in the U.S. committed suicide than live in the capital city of, of my state of Missouri. And the highest number of these in the top three categories were, were all men. I mean, men dominate that in, in every age category. And so certainly there's something. It's not a matter that educate. I'm not blaming education for all of those, but education certainly has a component in that because it's such a critical force in, in our, our life development. So um, walk us through what are some of those specific differences between boys and girls and kind of outline those those for us. Yes, um, I will. Your list of statistics is not unfamiliar to me. And I'm guessing that you have probably heard of Warren Farrell's book, The Boy Crisis. If not, I, I, I highly commend it. Okay. Uh, I commend it to all your listeners. In fact, I would consider it one of the most important books in print today. Wow. Okay. Um, Warren Farrell is a fascinating man, PhD psychologist. He was for many years a pro-feminist speaker. He was the only man on the New York National Organization for Women. He was a personal friend of Gloria Steinem, uh -huh. and his experience in the world of feminism actually helped him see that while we have done as a society everything we possibly can to help girls, we have done nothing to help boys. Uh, or worse, we have impeded boys through various social policies. Um, you know, now one thing we know is that if money could have fixed education, it would have done so long ago. Right. Because we spend an average and in some place, an average of three times and in some places up to five times as much in inflation adjusted dollars as we did in 1970. And every benchmark of progress, reading, writing, comprehension, behavior, discipline, everything has got worse. So one argument is the schools have gotten worse. And I would say that most people who spend a bit of time in schools would notice that they are rather boy unfriendly places. Many schools are run and dominated by women who may or may not understand boys. Uh, the way to be a successful student in most schools, if you're a boy, is be more like a girl, right? Sit down, stay in one place, smile at the teacher, raise your hand, and answer all the questions. And, you know, for a lot of boys, that just is not in their skill set. Right. Right. Um, and it's not just about character. It really goes back to brain and anatomical differences. Yeah, exactly. The other factor, and Will Ferrell brings this out in his book, The Boy Crisis, very well, 
And I have just started another book called Them Before Us. It's an argument for children's rights, but with a specific focus on a children's right to having a mother and a father in their life. And how the real problem with the prisons and the drugs and the dropout rates and the crime and everything is fatherless homes. Yes, and there's there the, the correlation between those statistics is is unmistakable. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why in education there's this incredible opportunity then with because education isn't always going to solve those problems, right? I mean, people do have to take ownership of, of their own lives. And yet at the same time, being able to come alongside and to do everything possible to minimize the the impact of that through a quality and education that is very gender aligned. Yes, absolutely. That's what Dr. Sachs was trying to build in his work during that decade. He was virulently attacked. And uh, he's now shifted over to work in a, a much more, I don't know, dangerous area and volatile area. And that would be the problem of schools pushing kids towards transgenderism and sex sex orientation fluidity and all of that. That it's, you know, and he's not a Christian and he doesn't have an agenda other than what's the scientifically good for children. Uh, So I I really appreciate him in that way. But uh, what I learned from him, and we'll give the thumbnail sketch, and if people want to hear the whole talk, they can, is that there are actually some physiological differences that are way almost a supermajority well, more than a supermajority. In some cases, up into the 80-90% of boys um, are have certain differences compared to 80-90% of the girls. And one of those has to do with hearing. Now, it's it sounds like biased or sexist or something to say, well, girls hear better than boys. I think most moms of boys figure this out pretty darn quick. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it has to do with the way that the cochlea is connected to the auditory nerves. And so there's just more cells and better connection. And girls, almost all of them, hear softer sounds than boys. Okay. And, you know, you could look at this and say there's an evolutionary reason or there's a a God created this way reason. Um, Mothers, by nature, are very protective. They're very sensitive to softer sounds, whereas men tend to be more focused and they will have the ability to tune out things that are not contributing to their work of the moment, 
whether that is designing spaceships or building Legos. So uh, this comes across, of course, in teaching. And, you know, I had long noticed when teaching kids, if I speak loud enough for the, to really engage the boys in the room, the poor girl sitting next to him thinks you're yelling at her. <laughs> right. And so even, even before I met Dr. Sachs, I really liked to try to get all the boys on one side of a room and all the girls on the other. I would kind of semi-consciously or almost intentionally segregate them. And then I would stand near the boys and talk loud and wave my arms and pound on the table and they're very engaged and the girls are over there perfectly safe and it worked it worked really well um but uh you know, this uh, i think we we can see application in the home certainly in classrooms and just in general realizing that little boys do not hear as well as most little girls. So that's one difference that Dr. Sachs brought out. And, you know, there are several uh, implications from that that could be unpacked. Um, and some of perhaps, those are really pretty simple things that a teacher can incorporate into just the classroom setting, just the structure, right? So even having boys sit up closer, like you said, having them on one side or the other, or a teacher that moves around the classroom more when there's important points to be made. And, mm -hmm. you know, so um, I'll, I'll so give you another. Require... Yeah, go ahead. I'll give you another really good example in the classroom. Um, when I teach a writing class and there's something finished and ready to be read, uh, or they turn it in and I pick a few papers to read to the group, I always read them. I do not have the kids read their own paper. Why? Well, number one, I know I can read it loud enough that everyone in the room will hear it well. Whereas you could get a nice, sweet, kind of soft-spoken, little bit shy, 10-year-old girl to stand up and read her story or whatever. She's not getting past the first row. The boys in the back aren't hearing a thing, and they're starting to die of boredom. And when you are a boy and you start to die of boredom, you do stuff to not die of boredom, which <laughs> right. usually includes throwing stuff, making noises, you know, doodling, whispering to your buddy, uh, you know, anything like that. So I noticed that when I read it, not only can everyone hear better, the child who wrote it can actually hear it being read better than he or she could read it themselves. And, you know, a lot of teachers have asked me, why don't you let the kids read their own paper? Well, there are some very clear reasons as to why. And if I were, if I, if I were going to have a child read their own paper, I would practice with them several times and work on public speaking techniques. You know, breathe from your belly, fill your lungs, project to the back of the room, look at the clock on the back wall, stuff like that. So, uh, so that that hearing th thing just made so much sense to me. And you know, we have to realize there's always a 
an overlap. There will be some boys who hear softer sounds than some girls because there are individual differences. But the large supermajority of boys uh, just do better when the volume is higher. Wow. Hasn't this been a rich conversation so far? Andrew has a wealth of information and a gracious and generous spirit. And I know that you have been encouraged and equipped with what you've heard so far today. But there's more to come. On the next episode, we're going to pick up with part two of this interview. In the meantime, I encourage you to check out the IEW.com website. Whether you are a Christian school administrator, teacher, or a home educator, there's a wealth of information and materials and resources that you can put to use in your endeavor to equip the upcoming generation to be confident and competent thinkers and speakers. You can also find information on the IEW website about speaking engagements for Andrew in the upcoming year. And I highly recommend making that a priority if at all possible for you. One of these specific challenges in education is that you're always dealing with something new. It's not a widget producing business where you're able to get your manufacturing plant assembly line down to a fine-tuned, well-oiled running machine. There's always new students, new challenges, new people. And even if you say, well, I'm a home educator, I don't have new kids popping in my house every single year. Trust me, as your children grow up, they enter new life stages and seasons, and there's always going to be something new that you have to deal with. And having the information and the resources so that you can be equipped and empowered to make the best possible decisions is one of the reasons for the Key 3 Educators podcast and website. Take a moment not only to subscribe, but also to rate and review. It's a way you can pay it forward. You can help other educators locate this information, whether you listen on your favorite podcast app or on the website, key3educators.com. Take just a moment today and help somebody else who's also on this education journey. Until next time, remember my friend, you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. Thank you for being with us today. For information on speaking engagements and resources for your school or family, visit the website key3educators.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.